to a Hope 103.2 podcast. Welcome to Australia's Invisible History, the podcast where we make the invisible visible. I'm Katrina Rowe, a writer, broadcaster and podcaster based in the Riverina of New South Wales. Dr. Paul Rowe, the Outback historian, is a storyteller from the back of Burke, and together we are retelling the tales of some of Australia's invisible heroes, pioneers and visionaries. These are the forgotten folks who made a huge contribution to Australia. Many of them spoke up on behalf of Australia's most marginalised and invisible people. Most were leaders in their field, but all of them were following the invisible footsteps of their own leader, the carpenter and teacher from Nazareth. I hope you'll enjoy learning about some of the true characters who have shaped our Australian way of life. Today's story starts in a small town called Three Springs, 300 kilometres north of Perth in Western Australia. It was here that Ralph Honor's devout Catholic mother would give him his Christian name, Hyacinth, after Saint Hyacinth, whose feast day he was born on. Honor trained as a teacher in Perth initially and later studied law. I doubt anyone would have predicted that this poetic and scholarly young man would grow up to become one of Australia's best-known officers of World War II. Honor fought in Libya, Greece and Crete, but it's for his efforts on the Kokoda track that he's best remembered. And one of the most brilliant things he did, I think, was to take a, a platoon who'd lost badly in the last couple of fights and it had a bad reputation, and he put them right in the centre of the battle and said, you're in charge of this part. I'm depending on you to hold this place because this is the key to the battle. And they fought brilliantly. Ralph Honor was a military leader with a profound sense of duty to resist evil. He's remembered for his role in leading the 39th Militia Battalion in the defensive battle at Isurava on the Kokoda track. When it seemed all was lost, he managed to reinvigorate a group of inexperienced, exhausted and defeated militia into a cohesive fighting force that held their ground against the advancing Japanese. Today, they are regarded as Anzac heroes. Dr. Paul Rowe, the Outback historian, has been enjoying getting to know this Kokoda legend. Hi, Paul. G'day, Katrina. Yes, uh, remember you live down there in Sydney and not far from where you were, there's a, a Kokoda memorial and Ralph Honor's right in the centre of it. So it was down there at Concord. Yeah, there's like a trail there. That's a, that's a beautiful mm. spot. So he, though, comes from Western Australia originally, from a little place called Three Springs, which mm-hmm. sounds like something from a cosy murder mystery, <laughs> actually. Um, but where exactly is Three Springs and what do we know about his childhood there? Well, it's about 300 kilometres north of Perth. So it's in the outback, really, and on a they had a farm there called... Is it Wheat Belt, sort of yeah, farming country? Belt, yeah, or? that's right, and... A farm called Del Wallanu, I think was the name of it. But he came from an Irish Catholic family who had come to South Australia initially uh, the century before. And uh, they had that robust sort of Irish Catholic uh, determination to hang on on the perimeter because quite often they were forced out onto the perimeters of the land that was usually uh, controlled by the Protestants. And uh, they had to be tough and determined. And so they were and they, they hung on. But uh, Ralph's dad was actually a policeman in the, the outback, and uh, but they had a little farm as well. So that was kind of the, the atmosphere he grew up in, and his mum in particular was a very strong Catholic, and, of course, that's where he got his name, Hyacinth. 
You've got to explain that. His real name wasn't Ralph. It was Hyacinth. What's yeah. that all about? <laughs> Unfortunately, we all think of Mrs. Bouquet, whose name was Hyacinth in that television series. But actually, St. Hyacinth, which was the day on which Ralph was born, uh, his mum named him after a saint. And this saint from the 12th century was a pretty big hero himself. He covered a very vast section of the northern part of Europe with the gospel. So he was a a hero in his own right, but it was pretty tough for a kid to go down to down to boarding school with a name like Hyacinth Honor, and he quickly shifted to say, Mum, they, they think I'm a Sheila, so he shifted to being Ralph. Yeah, apparently he got enrolled into home economics or something just from yeah. his name. <laughs> Poor guy. I think he even got a letter inviting him to join the, the teacher's college that was sent to Miss Honor, and he said, Mum, call me Sheila. So Ralph it was then, and when did he join the military? He was initially a teacher, wasn't he? And so what was his path to joining the military? Yeah, well, he, he went into university and he actually, you know, his work on the farm made him, bulked him up, made him a good athlete. Uh, he was very interested in history and English, and in particular, in, he took out of that a very strong interest in chivalry from the Middle Ages and the epic poems, and he loved those things, and they become very much part of his inner world and sort of matched to his Catholic faith, his robust sort of determination to do what was right no matter what the cost. And that was very, very much embedded. That was the root system for whatever he did. So when he went teaching, he eventually became a lawyer as well. And then, of course, when he joined the army, he brought all those things to the job. Whatever he did, he did it with a wholeheartedness and a determination to do the right thing. So he was already working as a lawyer when he joined the military. Did that just happen when war broke out? Well, I think he'd already been in the militia, like a trainee corps. Reserves, Reserves, yeah, we call them now. Uh, hmm. So he, he'd had an interest in that whole area. So when the war came, he thought, well, we've got to resist Hitler. That's the right thing to do. He was 35 years old. So, of course, he went in fairly soon straight into the officer corps. And when he was there and he was given a chance to lead a battalion will be part of one of the leaders. He he was part of choosing the very best men. So they were volunteers and they were men, a lot of them from the mining fields. So he chose big, robust-looking guys and that was his. That were, they were the men that he led. So he was initially sent to Libya and then spent time in Europe. What do we know about his wartime experiences in the Middle East and in Europe? Yeah, that's the remarkable thing. I mean, for a teacher and a lawyer and a fairly mild sort of scholarly bloke, when he when he walked into the battlefield, he was very, very switched on, very committed, very clear in his thinking. So at Tobruk, he, he learned to operate his men under fire, under, particularly under artillery fire, and that was a very important thing he learned. And he did very well. They, they took a lot of uh, Italian prisoners and equipment. When he went to Greece, they were fighting a retreat from the Germans, who were much more determined soldiers than the Italians. So he had to learn how to play a fighting retreat, which, of course, stood him in good stead when he got to Kokoda. And then, of course, in Crete, they, the, all hell broke loose in Crete, and uh, the Luftwaffe came into its own, and uh, they bombed and dropped paratroopers, and it was a very, very fierce fight in the war. And, of course, again, it was a retreat. They had to sort of uh, leave Crete under gunfire, and I think he was rescued by a submarine, came back to Australia with all that experience under his belt. So he was chosen as a very tested battlefield commander to go to a pretty tough job up there in the highlands of New Guinea. 
Mm. Well, he was recommended for a military cross, wasn't he, after Crete? Exactly, yep. yeah. And DSO on military cross eventually, yeah. So, Paul, in 1942, he was sent into one of the most testing situations that Australian soldiers have ever faced, the Kokoda mm. Track in New Guinea, at a time in which Australia was very much under threat of invasion by the Japanese army. What did he find when he arrived in New Guinea? Well, the Japanese had had fantastic success, as we know, through Singapore and the islands, and uh, they were getting set to moving to Australia, we think. Uh, they cer- certainly seemed so at the time. And uh, they landed on the north coast of New Guinea. They decided not to try a naval sort of uh, invasion because I think the American Navy was gathering strength. Mm. So they came across country, and, of course, it was very, very testing country, and they had they were equipped for it. But they met uh, a group of young militia Australian boys who were very young and not very well trained or equipped uh, for this enormous fight. And so they'd done reasonably well, but they'd been pushed back and pushed back and they had dysentery, they were under underfed, they, they were jungle sicknesses and, and sores and their boots had rotted and the, they were really in bad shape when Ralph Honor arrived up on the highlands and took took over the situation. So, okay, he's he's arrived there, he's found the men in a bad way. How did he reinvigorate them for this huge battle? Well, yeah, it was an amazing job and I think he was the man for the job because to take a, a, a group of beaten boys and turn them into a fighting force in a matter of days because the Japanese were pushing up through the, the Kokoda track. So he decided to make a stand at Izurava. He set up the field of fire, all the sorts of things he'd learned uh, from his previous battles uh, to use the country to advantage. And one of the most brilliant things he did, I think, was to take a, a platoon who'd lost badly in the last couple of fights. It had a bad reputation, and he put them right in the centre of the battle and said, you're in charge of this part. I'm depending on you to hold this place because this is the key to the battle. And they fought brilliantly, you know. So those boys, they they held the Japanese off for about three or four days until the Australian infantry arrived from the Middle East, like equipped, well-equipped and well-trained and experienced soldiers moved in beside them. And they stayed together for a while and held the Japanese back long enough for the Australian forces to get organised further back down the trail and supply lines. And eventually they pushed the Japanese back to the north coast. Mm. So why was that stand and that experience at Kokoda so important to Australia? It's become such a big part of our mythology now. Indeed. Yeah, I think it had been lost for a while, and I think it was Paul Keating when he was Prime Minister. He went up there and he, he kissed the ground, if you remember it, and said, look, this is a part of our history that we've forgotten. It's equally as important as Gallipoli. And uh, we should; these boys should be remembered because they fought an epic fight in very, very difficult circumstances. And we celebrate the, the fuzzy wuzzy angels, as they were called, the New Guineans, who got alongside them and helped carry wounded men out. And Damien Parra made a, a famous uh, documentary that showed the extraordinary fight that these young men put up. So those kind of documents came back to the surface, and uh, I think people began to evaluate exactly, you know, what these boys had done. So that's why it became a really heroic stand. And right now, if you go up there, and there's a lot of trekkers go up there now and walk the Kokoda Trail, young executives and old blokes, all sorts of people go up there as a test of courage. And up there on at Izurava, there are some pillars of stone that carry the, the Anzac values like mateship, courage, self-sacrifice and so on. Mm. So much later in his life, 
he got involved in politics. He ended up actually as an ambassador to Ireland. What kind of contribution did he make in his later life, Paul? Well, I think he was an extremely intelligent man and, and uh, his war record, of course, stood stood him in good stead. But he was a man of substance and a man of character and nothing had shifted, nothing had really changed in terms of his strong Christian faith, his determination to do what was right and to, be, to fight for what was true. So I think he brought that to well, a number of levels. He was involved with the United Nations for a while too um, and then as an ambassador to Ireland. But he also became the first Catholic president of this of the New South Wales Liberal Party, which was unusual at the time because Catholics tended to be found in the in the Labor Party or in the Democratic Labor Party. So he was a bit of a, an unusual character in that sense. Hmm. And uh, I, I like the fact that he fought a bit of a battle when he first got there to have a prayer as part of their, whatever the, the, the Liberal Party did. Um, he had a prayer which was very much, I think, came out of his experiences in the war, which said, God, grant us in our deliberations your wisdom that we can see clearly, speak with truth, act with courage and justice so that in all our works your will will be done. And mm. I think that's how he fought his battles. That's how he led his men. He always said his prayers, if you like to put it that way, as a man of prayer. And uh, he brought that into terms of his character and his love for his men and the way he, he did the job, whether he was on the battlefield or at, or at home. As well as being a man of faith, he was quite poetic, wasn't he, with his words and I know yeah, that his yeah. speech to his soldiers in New Guinea has been recorded and remembered as a piece of great oration as well. Yes, I think he well he, he carried that sort of um, from university, his love for the epic poem and uh, for that kind of language, high, high language I think we'd call it, you know, uh, that kind of expression that calls it, for the highest of virtues, his biographer thinks he he saw a lot of what he was doing in terms of those chivalrous, chivalrous kind of knights of old fighting for the right. And so his language tended to have that sort of uh, Shakespearean edge to it, yeah. Mm. So what impresses you most about Honor? Yeah, that's a good question. I think uh, I think he was a bush boy, I think, as opposed to the outback historian. That sort of appealed to me that he was lumping wheat bags and that toughened him up. And, you know, I think he'd had that Irish Catholic experience of being a battler on the edge of town and not being in the mainstream. And then at university, of course, uh, making his own way and being his own man. I think that's very much his style. Uh, and he got, that came from his family and he had a wife that backed him on the same thing. And uh, together they made quite a team. So I think I see a powerful root system that came from his family's faith, particularly his mother's, who shaped his life. He carried that onto the battlefield and he always acted with courtesy and kindness and uh, almost understated. There was a famous moment, I think, up the Kokoda when a shell landed next to him and a few officers and he looked. they looked at him and thought, what's he going to do? They were ready to hit the deck and he said, gentlemen, would you join me lying on the ground? Because I think if we keep standing here, we'll be blown up. <laughs> I like that style. So they said he when, he when he spoke, he spoke very calmly and clearly and he was a humble man but a very, very determined man. And I think there's a beautiful story that comes from uh, the end of his life when he was being buried in Sydney at Northern Suburbs Cemetery with military honours and the hierarchy were there and his family and so on flag draped coffin and the 
you know, the bugle playing and all those sort of things. Then in the middle of the ceremony, unannounced and uninvited, a Japanese veteran walked out of the crowd, bowed to the coffin and went across to the family and handed a letter of condolence. And when I read that, I was quite moved because I thought, what was it that that Japanese soldier had learned about Ralph Honor? I think he saw a man of character, a man of caliber, a man of faith and deep respect for him, you know. So that's quite a story, quite a finish, and it says a lot about him. Well, you know someone's a true leader when even their enemies respect them. Exactly, yeah. He won mm. the respect of enemy and friend, you know, so good good man. And I think the kind of person that boys and girls could look to and say, now there's a man who lived his virtues out. He wasn't just a talker about it. He, he they were so embedded in his life that his root system was deep in I think he's Christian faith, and that showed in his character and he carried it into whatever he did with courage. Well, thank you so much for sharing his story. Great story. I'm honoured to honour Ralph Honor. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I think I think, uh, I think think Olsen Hyacinth would have showed up at his, his funeral too and bowed to the coffin. I've got a feeling that he would have said, oh, I'm glad that boy carried my name. <laughs> Even if he kind of didn't carry it <laughs> and chose a different name. Yes. All right. Thanks, Paul. That is the Outback historian, Dr. Paul Rowe. We've been talking about the devout Catholic and war hero, Ralph Honor. Paul's new book is called Tell Me Another, a storyteller's search for Australia's lost faith. You can find Paul online at theoutbackhistorian.com.au and you can find me at katrinarowe.com. Thanks for listening to episode 27 of Australia's Invisible History, the podcast where we make the invisible visible. And I hope you've enjoyed learning about one of Australia's true war heroes and the inspiration behind his military success. You can find more links and info in our notes section. In our next episode, we'll hear the story of David Uniapon, the Indigenous inventor, author and preacher, a man of enormous intellect and deep Christian conviction. He travelled around Australia lecturing on science, preaching in churches and speaking out on Aboriginal issues. He also collected and recorded Aboriginal myths and legends. While there were opportunities and he took them, he was also treated second rate, I think, by a lot of people and the doors were also closed on him. So he struggled to find a platform really initially and I think it was the Aboriginal Friends Association that gave him opportunities and he took those opportunities and he began to speak not just about um, science, although he was prolific in talking about science and became recognised very quickly as a, an expert in his field in sort of ballistics and motion and that of course led to the inventions he made but also a preacher, a very gifted preacher and uh, also talking about his, his own uh, culture. So he sort of had irons in a lot of different fires and he seemed to be very good at it. Hey, if you've enjoyed our stories, please share them with your family, friends, students or colleagues. You can sign up for the latest news at hope1032.com.au or follow Dr. Paul Rowe at theoutbackhistorian.com.au. I'm Katrina Rowe. You can find me on Facebook or Insta as Katrina Rowe Author. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you've enjoyed this episode of Australia's Invisible History, please do subscribe and share among your friends so we can keep telling the stories. Plus, you can find more details and useful links in the show notes. Hope 1032. Thanks for listening.